0: we say save. Many of those reacting to and evaluating my recent deconversion have attempted to come up with a neat and tidy single narrative for what brought about my fall from grace. They've ranged from the pitying sympathy that imagined me simply struggling during a dark night of the soul, confident I'll return after some prodigal son experience with the pigs, all the way to fairly judgmental and condescending, usually from people who know little to nothing about me, but seem cocksure about what my heart and mind must be feeling and thinking, respectively. While they can be irksome, I find the latter typically funny if they weren't so tragic. I just pity that kind of wholesale lack of empathy and ability to even listen to someone else's story without furnishing one's own false flag true narrative of what really happened while getting almost every detail humorously wrong. Admittedly, my comments on the matter were focused on the final straws, the last drops of water that made the dam burst. But just as it would be wrong to think that the dam burst only because of the volume of those last few drops and not the building pressure of the whole river of water, So, too, it would be wrong to think that the reasons I've mentioned so far were the sole or even the sufficient causes for my deconversion. This is where the feeling that I mentioned in my last video came from. The hearing about my deconversion from others was like watching an Amazon version of your favorite book. It's sometimes the same narrative plot points and locations and character names, but it gets all the themes and the motivations and basically the story wrong. It's a story, maybe even a compelling and interesting story, but it's not my story. However, going forward, I'm hoping to put behind me the biographical aspect of what finally led to my deconversion and simply can point people to my initial announcement and to the beginning of this episode. And even here, I only mean to mention it by way of setting the initial context for the bulk of this episode. And even then, only a structural reminder of the, uh, the distinction I found helpful between the loss of my faith and the later loss of my commitment to the faith and to Jesus. That is, to the substance of the faith in the intellect and upon the heart, and the force or the wherewithal, the, the steadfastness of my commitment to remaining faithful to Jesus and the faith once delivered in the ministry of the gospel, just in case it really was just a phase. I've argued, and I think rightly, that faith isn't a cognitive thing. It's not beliefs. It's not the content of theological systems. Though there is a valid use of the term faith that can mean that. And and when we say things like, the faith passed down to us from the apostles, it can mean doctrines. But generally, faith, or pistis, is a volitional category. It's an act of the will. Faith is not my belief that airplanes are made of aluminum and plastics and metals and are propelled by jet fuel and so forth. Faith is my whole life willful decision and subsequent action of boarding the airplane. My previous episode and announcement of my deconversion focused almost exclusively on the latter, on why I decided to stop trying to hold all the pieces together and make it work on the airplane. And I think that may be part of what caused a lot of the Amazon style retellings to so miss the boat. So that's my bad. They seem to think that when I spoke about losing my faith, they filtered it through me losing my beliefs. The anti Calvinists like McGrew and Thompson and the Provisionist Perspective guys and others took that added a healthy amount of what can only be called creative license, and overdosed it with heavy-handed anti-Calvinistic axe grinding. But I'll comment more on that in a moment. So for this episode, I'd like to go back in time and lay out some of the major reasons why, a year or so before my deconversion, I had found that I no longer believed it all anymore. That is... What were the reasons, arguments, intuitions, and other features of reality that led me to begin to deconstruct my Christian theological framework and move in the direction that I have? I'm going to give a brief sketch of the reasons here, and I'll be devoting devoting more content to each of these in the coming year. This episode will not be exhaustive by any means, and in reflecting on my deconversion, it was not so linear. So while I'm going to attempt to give an orderly recounting here, one should not think that I, I was this ship-shape and systematic in the thick of it all. I did not move from one of these topics cleanly to the other in an orderly fashion. Each one of them caused a ruckus. They, they didn't wait their turn in line. They ebbed and flowed. They switched off, which was more prominent in times, and sometimes I felt like I had a good answer, but then sometimes that same answer felt tenuous and I don't think that I was even aware of how much they were impacting me. Therefore, much of this episode is putting the puzzle pieces in place as I reflect on and reconstruct my journey over the last few years, as it seems fitting to me as well to have investigated everything carefully and to present to you an orderly account, so to speak. Without further pomp and circumstance, here are some of the multifaceted reasons that led me to question, doubt, struggle against, and finally disbelieve much of what I believed as a Christian. And remember, this is a brief survey of the kinds of things that impacted my thinking. This is not a full treatment of them. So many of you may be shouting at your phone's rejoinders or responses, or but Tyler, this is the obvious defeater, or didn't you think about that? I'll get to those defeaters and those nuances in later episodes as I pick these apart one by one, so please do not think that just because I do not interact with the objections and other considerations here in these episodes that I have never or will never do so. I'm simply laying out the overall picture, the the 40,000 foot view that led to my disbelief. Also, remember that for many, there is value in faithfully maintaining a profession even during times of doubt and disbelief. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, but on a grander scale. That there is actual sanctification to be found in professing Jesus as Lord and and to committing yourself to an orthodox system of doctrine, even when you doubt it or struggle to even believe it, to remain faithful even in the face of disbelief. So no, I wasn't lying. I was allowing my will, my faith, what little there was left, to gird up the attempt to overcome my doubt just in case it really was a prodigal dark night of the soul. I was trying to remain faithful to the faith even while I was struggling with the doctrines. So now to the reasons. First reason, classical theism, which is funny because I'm still a classical theist. Now, while several staunch critics of classical theism will revel in this one, mainly of the open theism and process theology types, my strong commitment to classical theism was probably the single largest factor in my deconstruction. Not because it had the most singular impact on any one belief or because I found it in and of itself problematic or false because, well... I still believe it, but because it had the widest impact on my thinking. It seemed to touch on, kick off, or trickle down into every aspect of my theological framework. The roots went far and wide and hide and deep. It was, and still is, pervasive in my thinking. I can almost hear McGrew now. See, it's poison. Its roots are poisonous and going and blah. To which I can only roll my eyes at the cringiness of such a myopic mistreatment of what I'm saying here. Part of this is precisely because I think the arguments for God are so strong and the attempted defeaters for them are so weak that my warrant for belief in the God of the philosophers, the omnimax, immutable God of perfections, is so high that I found it steamrolled other beliefs which I had low warrant for or which I only held by faith whenever there was tension between them. If I was going to resolve a tension or smooth over an inconsistency between something that was vague in the Bible or historic Christianity on the one hand and classical theism on the other, classical theism would win, hands down, every time. Now, I can hear the criticism of the biblicists on the other hand, and I get the impulse. That's humanism. That's man-made philosophy. That's the audacity of human autonomy standing in judgment of the word of God. Fair enough. I understand those criticisms within the context and the hollowed confines of the theological bastilles from which they're levied. I get it. I really do. However, I'm just not moved by them anymore. At least not any more than the heliocentrist committed by the sound evidences of creation that then used the Book of Nature to guide how they would have to reinterpret the Book of Scripture, despite the same kind of naysaying from the biblicists who then were defending geocentrism. Sometimes, we really do just have to follow the arguments and the external evidence where they lead. So, I found that I had more and more robust and seemingly indefeasible warrant for the belief in the existence of the god of classical theism writ large but that this trounced biblical views which have very little external warrant for them in the process. Why? Because I found that there were tensions. There were inconsistencies in the warp and woof of the biblical image of Yahweh and the image of classical and that of classical theism. I'll delve more into this in a moment in my second reason, but here I want to clarify something. I do not think that open theists like Alan Rhoda, Clark Pinnock, John Sanders, Greg Boyd, William Hasker, and definitely not lay pundits like Will Duffy, Warren McGrew, Drew Micliad, and the perennially obnoxious Chris Fisher are even remotely correct in their attempts to handle the scriptures or even the arguments for and against classical theism. Their hermeneutics, or really their lack thereof, are wildly inconsistent, sometimes overly literalistic in a way that would make the most ardent classical dispensationalist blush, and other times so flowery and downright imaginative and subjectively innovative and just not tethered to the text or the context whatsoever that it's hard to even imagine that we're all even reading the same texts. So while I know the latter internet pundits will clip this and use it in their polemical attempts to lay siege to the historic Christian orthodoxy of classical theism, and particularly of the reform variety, sorry to my former brethren, their view is honestly not even a rational option on the table, and it shouldn't be really for anybody. They have and will continue to pretend that it was my neoplatonic view of God that did me in. This is laughably bad as a hot take on my deconversion. Why? Imagine for a second that I said that one of the issues that I had with the Bible was that I simply could no longer believe the view that I found to be the best understanding of Genesis 1, that, that it's a polemical, polemical temple text used to satirize the gods and the surrounding nations and to present Yahweh as the true king, uh, the true high king ascending to his throne in the cosmic temple. Now, Imagine a flat earth, young earth creationist came along and said, See, I told you, your temple text view is what did you in and caused you not to believe. Like, no. I may have found the temple text view ultimately incorrect or that it still had irresolvable conflicts with other passages or with what we observe about actual creation, Again, I'm imagining here because this had nothing to do with my deconversion, but it just does not follow that a view that I found and still find even more absurd for countless other reasons would have somehow fared any better, especially in the actual case of classical theism, which I still think is true. Another analogy is the problem of evil. I stand by the arguments I gave before that Reformed theology honestly gives the best responses to the problem of evil from any Christian perspective. And all the problems that people suppose it has are actually far worse and more problematic if Reformed theology were false. Like, somehow, if it's a problem to say that God predetermines evil but has his own good plans and purposes for some instances of evil and that that's bad for some reason— How is it better that God didn't have a plan or a purpose for it? That he doesn't want or will it to happen in any sense such that the evil is truly gratuitous, God isn't in control over it, could prevent it from happening if he wanted to, which apparently he does, but still does nothing. How is that a better alternative? So it'd be weird to say that the view that I held to be the best view somehow did me in, because had I believed the more ridiculous one, it would have been better. In fact, we'll talk about this later, but I mentioned how the conspicuous absence of God and the lack of comfort that we should expect from the God of comfort that that was one of the main things at the very end of the process that finally snuffed out the last vestigial commitment to Jesus that I had. This may digress for a few minutes, but I think it'll be helpful. The Bible says the following. Okay, I'm going to read some Bible verses for you. Second Corinthians, and this is all ESV, Second Corinthians 1, 3-4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Psalm 119.76 Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promises to your servant. Matthew 5.4 Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Isaiah 51, 12, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies of the son of man who is uh, made like grass? By the way, this is the passage where we get the name Jehovah Menachem, the God who comforts. It's literally one of the names of God. 2 Corinthians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, and on and on. So when I looked at these ministerial promises of God, I took that as background information in the kind of experiences the scriptures tell the, that children of God should expect from the God of comfort, from Jehovah-Menahem. So when I hold that up, to my own experience and i do not see them aligning in the real world that is what caused tensions again that's not an ear ir- you know unresolvable tension but it was the final straw not that classical theism somehow made me think that god was cold or not living or static or unloving or anything like that which McGrew and others claim. So I had some Christians on the one hand say I was being too emotionally driven and that it was somehow sinful to expect that God would comfort me when I was begging and pleading for comfort and to know him more. Again, not praying for things or stuff or favorable circumstances, just to know that he was with me. That's it like he promised he would on the other hand though the open theist wants to come along and say oh tyler's classical theism his cold toxic or what mcgrew calls poisonous view of god did him in but again did it notice here my classical theism that i held had no problem expecting that god would be personal loving kind and comforting living and active in my life the problem wasn't classical theism The problem was that that simply didn't match the reality of my life. But it's not that I thought or think God is some cold, fatalistic, static being. One that's pure abstracta and I don't even expect him to be living and active in my life and emotions. If that were the case, I would have had no tensions at all in my life when I didn't see God acting in my life to keep me in his love. That just would have aligned perfectly if that would have been my view. No cognitive dissonance, which would have been great. It's precisely because, as a classical theist, I found the specifically Christian promises to be at odds with reality. And how would open or non-classical theism fare any better? At least on Reformed theology, I had the means to say that God at least could, in principle, have plans and purposes and righteous reasons for decreeing and predestining and foreordaining and bringing about what he decreed and so forth. If open theism were true, his silence and the at the pains of my life wouldn't have even been part of his plan. God would have not wanted them in any sense, have no plan or purpose for them because he wouldn't know about them in advance. They would have been out of his control and maybe he would have wanted to comfort me and could comfort me, but still just didn't. How is that any better? It's not. I would have apostatized years ago were not actually for much of the grace and the beauty and the truths I found in classical reform thought. In fact, on Reformed thought, God desires all to be saved in one sense, but decrees that only the elect are saved in a sufficient sense. So God desires all to be saved in that restrictive sense. But if Reformed theology were false and the non-Calvinist views were true that God desires as a first-order desire that all people were saved, that means the problem is even worse. It becomes more acute, not less. And this was part of my thinking. Maybe there are other kinds of Christian theologies that could fare better. But when I went through the exercise of slotting them in and slotting Reformed theology out and trying them on for size, they not only did not seem to solve any of the problems, but often they actually had a harder time overcoming the objections that I was running up against. For if God desires all to be saved and to not walk away in a first-order sense with no other secondary will, I could think of a hundred ways he could, if he wanted to, have prevented me from doing so in ways that would not violate my personal freedom or agency. And the answers given by these other theologies of soul-building, free will theodicies, and so on are also either available on Reformed Theology, or were trivially easy to prove insufficient, uh, prove it to be insufficient to bear the burden. And the other answers like, well, you don't want it, you chose sin, etc., all seem to either assume the very compatibilism they deny, for they assume that my desires are determinative of God's actions, or they denied some fundamental attribute of God that is more certain than the theology itself. Like that the creator would be necessarily assay, or they would just be downright legalism and synergism where I'm the final arbiter of my own salvation, which just is fundamentally not biblical Christianity in any way. So why would I accept that as the biblical view? Again, I'll dive more into these in later episodes, but here, just note, it's not as if I never thought about or explored or considered other theological options. But if I couldn't win a race in a Ferrari, why would someone think that if I swapped it out for a 1989 Ford Tempo with little donut spare tires on two of its wheels that I would fare any better? So the axe-grinding, gaslighting, creative myth-making, and false-flag-psychologizing narratives of the anti-Calvinists, again, would be just flat-out humorous if they weren't so sad and petty. By the way, I'm focusing so much on the anti-Calvinists and the open theists because they're some of the most vocal, some of the easiest examples to pinpoint, and some of the most consistent. And that's actually a compliment. I'll get into the other views uh, late in later episodes like Molinism and Arminianism and Lutheranism and even progressive theology and why those weren't options for me after I explored them either, but one main reason that they weren't was because I always found them internally inconsistent. They're false even on their own terms. For example, it seems to me from the arguments regarding divine foreknowledge and freedom that Either something like compatibilism is true, or open theism is true. The views in the middle seem to fail on reductio ad absurdum lines. Molinism started by affirming libertarian freedom, but it ends up with compatibilism and a, and a freedom that isn't libertarian, and it ends up with predestination that isn't for a nation. But it's exactly the same thing, and I could never actually tell the difference between what I, as a Reformed Calvinist, said the decree meant. But open theism is effectively the inverse of classical and Reformed thought. They agree that if God really were omniscient in the historic Orthodox sense, that we really wouldn't have libertarian freedom. The problem is, is that they simply... Bite the wrong bullets and they accept things that are patently wrong or absurd and have no warrant for them, unlike classical theism, which has a very robust case going for it. So it has that outweighing it on the scales. And rather than downright, sorry, rather than downgrading man on open theism, they downgrade their concept of God to a very pagan, mega Zeus concept. I know they hate that term, but it's accurate. It's consistent to be sure but it's absurd and not really an option for anyone convinced of the arguments for classical theism or, or really sound reason. And if they're right, that their view is what the Bible teaches, then I take it that that's just another reason to reject the Bible, just like if it could be shown that Gnosticism was the real view of those people who wrote the Bible. Here, the tensions I observed were not with the exegetical variety, sorry, we're not of the exegetical variety, that are involved in the the debates between classical theism and open theism, but rather it's almost because open theism is so poorly represented in the Bible, so vacuous, so inadequate and unworthy of belief that the attention arose. I think that something like the reading of classical theism, specifically in the Reformed and even some of the Jesuit readings of the Bible, were the most robust, defensible, and honest interpretations that rub shoulders closest with the census literalis, or the authorial intent of the Bible. That is, if someone is going to read the Bible as a single canon, one that must hold together a singular and inspired message by one underlying divine author, moving the 42 human authors down the same river, then the Reformed and classical theistic position is the gold standard, hands down. It seemed to me, and still does, that if one's going to be a Bible-believing Christian to be as consistent as they possibly can with that, that's the route they should go to have the highest chance of reading the Bible as God intended. So, the fact that I ultimately found it unsatisfying, inconsistent with other data sets, and at discord with reality, simply does not entail that classical theism, or even more narrowly, Calvinism, is the thing that did me in. Let me give some examples of how affirming classical theism actually did me in. Uh, It actually did cause problems for my Christian beliefs. But it's not the way that the anti-Calvinists, the open theists, and the non-classical theists think. Not because it was false or created this view of this alternative view of God, but precisely because I think it's true. So... How did classical theism disrupt my specifically Christian beliefs? Well, reason number two, Yahweh in the Bible. Reading the Bible as if it were one book with one divine author did not solve all the problems. By the way, I'm going to talk about this kind of mingles in with how my view on inerrancy and infallibility and inspiration may have also colored some of this. And I grant that and I'll talk about that in a later episode. As I grew in my understanding of classical theism and had an ever-escalating and heightened view of God, it seemed to leave Yahweh here on earth. Very terrestrial, very tribal, very ancient Near Eastern, pagan, all too human. An open theist paradise if there ever was one. So the issue was not with passages about God's foreknowledge or timelessness, for example. I think the Bible easily conveys that the authors perceived of Yahweh as being eternal and omniscient, knowing all things, even future choices and actions, from before eternity began. What did not seem to fit well, however, was Yahweh's almost infatuation with the minutiae and really the trivial minutia of human, in human affairs in ways that were often just petty, Given the existence of the high and exalted transcendent God of classical theism, I was never sure what to do with or how to handle why God was so fixated and fascinated with what kind of clothes his people wore, what kind of food they ate, how they ate it, and so forth. And yes, I understand the sanctification answer. They were markers to set them apart and to make them ceremonially clean. But why? Why did they need to be ceremonially clean? And what did that even mean metaphysically? It was not the same as being morally forgiven or atoned for or saved. So why spend so much time in redemptive history focused on such covenantal boundary markers that did nothing for salvation? And when salvation finally does come would be abrogated anyways and only understood for their underlying general equity. And in Christ, we're supposedly sub- ceremonially clean and do not need to follow those other ritual washings, but that is part of because our sins were forgiven, right? But theirs weren't. The more I started turning this concept over and, and around and playing with it in the ins and outs of it all, the less clear and more higgly-piggly it became to me. Why would being sprinkled with the blood of a bull magically make you ready to step foot in the temple? Why would walking on dirt that isn't Yahweh's dirt mean you would then not go walk on Yahweh's dirt until you washed? And isn't the whole earth Yahweh's dirt to begin with? And if blood was needed for some reason, why could the poor use cheap bread if they couldn't afford that of animals? I mean, I get the charity of it, but metaphysically, why? And why would giving birth, a very natural thing that God set up, why would that make women unclean? And don't get me started on stoning a disobedient child, except, you know, when no one ever did that, and Jesus' most famous story of the prodigal son would have had the father guilty of not doing that very thing. Again, I know there are answers, or at least attempts at answers, But when the entire system has to be created ad hoc to rescue the Bible from itself, the sheer volume of hoops to jump through every single and every topic has question after question after question after question, it just mounts and it becomes the world's most dizzying hamster tube maze. And the lopsidedness of it all was troubling. While I still stand behind my work on slavery in the Bible and think it's just foolish to say that the bible supports or condoned anything like chattel slavery i do feel the gravity of the question of sure but why not just make it clear that owning people was bad okay i mean i think that that can be validly drawn out of the text and that the abolitionist impulse is woven into the tapestry of the theme development of the bible but why hide it there why be submersive, er, subversive instead of clear, covert instead of over? Yahweh convinced the men, uh, elderly men, to cut off the tips of their penises. Surely he could have banned indentured servitude and any vestige of slave culture that he knew would cause problems and be abused to justify slavery later. Why not just nip it in the bud to begin with? I mean... He could have reasons to not, sure, but at a certain point, the pile of, well, he could do that for some unknown reason, just turns into a tower that builds up to the heavens and becomes unsatisfying as an answer. Especially when he could have done that in just a couple of sentences, and he sent paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs and chapters and chapters and chapters about how to kill an animal for a sacrifice. In addition to that, Yahweh also seems tribal, a local tribal deity that follows a specific ethno-geographic group and has grand battles with the deities of the nations and the tribes that they rub up against. The only biblical considerations of the Mayans and the Chinese and the Japanese and the aboriginals and so forth, you know, big swaths of humanity is only in very vague, almost eschatological application of the expansion of the gospel of millennia later on. Seemingly as Yahweh's victory over the gods of the nations advances anyway. Or in an even more bizarre take, as God recaptures the kingdoms from the dominion of the devil, who for some reason was allowed to run roughshod all over the earth, and take over the nations in the first place. The whole thing has a very House of Usher feel to it. And again, I'm not trying to say this to mock the Bible. I love the Bible. I think it's the most wonderful masterpiece of literature, hands down, ever written in in not even just Western culture, in the world. I mean, when you study the, the literary just brilliance of it, it's breathtaking. It's beautiful. It touches on the human experience. It does wonderful things. I'm not saying this to try to to diminish it or degrade it in any way. I, I genuinely love it. But all of this builds up so that I just don't think that it's religiously true anymore. So the non-classical theist may then think I'm closer to the truth. They're going to say things like, oh, Come to the overly personified, temporally confined, learning, mistake-making, finite, mutable God of the Bible. See? Classical theism doesn't fit what the Bible teaches. We've been saying that all along. Again, just because I gave up uh, what I thought was the strongest view, that doesn't mean the inversely weakest view is somehow back on the table. Like, classical theism, I think, best explains the overwhelming majority of the Bible— But it does so in a way that's inadequate to smooth it all over. It does it imperfectly, and there's some heavy inconsistencies. But that's the best reading of it. Open theism and non-classical views do a terrible job. They fit with even less of the Bible, and the ones that they do maybe fit are precisely where it would just be overtly pagan and man-made views of God, because if it were true, then it would really mean that Yahweh is nothing more than a mega-Zeus-type character anyways, one that learns and grows and changes, he's confined in time, he can make and does make mistakes, he's trying his darndest but fails a ton, and so forth. So, Sure, he's nice and loving, I guess, and he's not crawling through windows to seduce women and birth other tragically fallen demigods like the real Zeus was. Or I get—I mean, not real, like he's a real character, but the, the actual Zeus It's not the mega Zeus. But it's still a concept of God that's not really worth worshiping. I mean, is that concept of God really worth swearing your fealty to for the rest of your life? Is that really the God of historic Christianity? Not to mention that such a view would also run entirely at odds with the philosophical arguments that I have high warrant uh, to, to believe in the first place. Since God on their view would uh, would now be finite, temporal, mutable, not simple, not necessary in his being, changing, errant and so forth, we would still need the God of classical theism to ground things like why there's something rather than nothing, to break infinite regress of causation and things like the Kalam and contingency arguments, to ground objective morality and the moral argument, the, to ground transcendental facts of reality and the transcendental argument, and so on and so forth. Even the existence of time within the creation itself would need that transcendent and, and eternal, timeless, immutable God who isn't traversing time <laughs> to ground time right? So that means even if we granted the low pagan concept of God affirmed by the non-classical and open theists, we would still need to affirm some other being that looks a hell of a lot like the God of the philosophers and the classical theists. But then what? Are we to be henotheists and Gnostics affirming the, 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 the one high God as creator and then a kind of demiurge type imminent pagan God in the Bible underneath it? How absurd and just entirely unnecessary. So while McGrew and Thompson and Micliot and others, and other anti-Calvinists and open theists and non-classical theists will continue to lay the blame at the feet of classical theism and Calvinism, they miss that those were actually curbing influences and things that I thought were the strongest views, not the things that I found to be problematic. But then what? Here, I was thoroughly convinced of classical theism, unable to fully square it with the Bible, but also seeing that the other options were even worse or downright absurd, and Yahweh was looking more and more man-made and folksy as it went. So, And that's I'll leave that there for now. In the next episode, I'm going to give another survey of the next cluster of concepts that started to unravel during all of this as well. The Trinity, the hypostatic union, the vision of Christianity that seemed at odds between Jesus and Paul, tensions between faith and reason, and even the gospel itself. The metaphysics of creation where God set it up so that sin would be cosmically corrosive and covenantally deadly when it didn't have to be that way. Remember, in these preliminary episodes, I'm giving a super thumbnail sketch of the kinds of theological and philosophical considerations that led me to change my beliefs, the cognitive category, which then over the last year or two led to the loss of my faith, the volitional category. I'm not here even attempting to interact with the rejoinders and the objections and the arguments posed against the kinds of things that I've said here. I'll do that at a later time. So please, if any of you plan to engage with the content here, feel free to present those objections. Ask me the questions. Ask me to interact. Tell me, you know, have you thought about this? But don't be so audacious as to claim, I can't believe Tyler didn't even think about this objection or that objection See, he gave up without even thinking about these things. It was all emotion, blah, blah, blah. i thought about these things deeply, and I've studied, and I've read, and I've spoke with many people about them, and I've I've been diligently doing this for a very long time. I likely have thought about and engaged the objections that you have, and probably some of you haven't. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be more out there that people think of that I never did. And I look forward to interacting with those. So, but please don't confuse me giving the simple summary here with me presenting everything that I've thought about or interacted with on these topics or giving, you know, or or the fact that I haven't given all the positive and negative cases for or against it, that somehow I don't know about them or I'm ignoring them or I'm cherry picking or my emotions are trumping those arguments and so on and so forth. It's just not the case. So with that, thank you again. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please Feel free to reach out to me at FreethinkerPodcast at gmail.com. You can visit the blog at thefreethinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or come on by the Freethinker group page on Facebook. You can find this on anywhere where great podcast content is found or you can do it here uh, on YouTube. As always, please smash that subscribe button on the bottom, like it, share it, uh, and if you find it beneficial or helpful, help the discussion along and share it around. Again, thank you so much for joining and I hope you have a wonderful night.